I've been working in childhood obesity for over 20 years, uh, and with a very, very broad perspective. I'm trained in physiology and biochemistry, but I've also been doing a lot of work in the area of um, social and community economic aspects. So I'll talk to you a little bit today. This is just the very tip of the iceberg of the, of the work that we've done in this area. Um, but it's something that we're currently very interested in and I thought it would be relevant to, to, to the group here. I um, never really addressed an anthropology audience before. Um, so hopefully we'll have some common ground. I think we will. Um, so this is where I'm from. Most people think, actually, you probably don't know this, I'm from Glasgow originally. And it was really terrible. I lost my accent a long time ago. Very sad. Try and bring it back on. But I've been living in the US for 20 years, Los Angeles for 12 years. And most people think of Los Angeles as this very kind of glamorous, beachy, Hollywood, celebrity type of uh, city, which in part it is. Uh, I live on the other side of town, away from all the glamour. Los Angeles is a city of uh, 12 million people plus. It's a very uh, urban, dense, Population, as you probably know, that's the map there. That's the horrible. The lights okay? Can you see that? Lights down. One of the biggest things we're focused on in Los Angeles is the Hispanic population, which is huge in uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, in fact, in Los Angeles County, there's 4.2 million Hispanics. That's almost half of the population. And in fact, in East Los Angeles, where, where we work, 98% uh, of the population is Hispanic. So it's the most concentrated Hispanic population outside um, of, of um, South America. Mostly Mexican-American, some Central Americans. And you're probably already familiar with some of these terrible statistics, but in, Latino, in the Latino population, um, it's been projected that 50% of newborns are going to get diabetes at some point in their lifetime. So diabetes is a huge problem in, in the Hispanic population. Uh, and about 50% of the population is already overweight. And that's true for children. I'll show you some more specific data in a moment. And the metabolic problems of that are manifested, as I'll also show you, uh, very early in life just as you would expect from adults. We see this in childhood, pre-diabetes, metabolic syndrome, uh, fatty liver disease, cardiovascular risk. Um, those things are all very high. These are the latest numbers from the, from the US population, um, showing the prevalence of over overweight and obesity on the left and obesity on, on, the, on the right. Um, according to ethnicity. So this is also a major problem, at least in the U.S. as a whole, among blacks. You can see the higher numbers of childhood obesity um, in, in, in blacks here versus uh, whites. Um, it varies a little bit by age as well. Of course, we know it's a global problem. This is just some of the most recent data on the global prevalence of childhood obesity from a, a recent report called The World is Fat. 
And being half Scottish and half American now, although really I'm fully Scottish, but I count myself as half American, I share the honor of Scotland and the US being tied for the most highly prevalent childhood obesity in the world um, of over 30%. Of course, these are um, national numbers, and we know there's a lot of uh, variation. These are more specific data in uh, Los Angeles children showing the prevalence of obesity. I'm going to use the terms obesity and overweight a little bit kind of intermingling just uh, by definition when I say obesity in children I mean above the 95th percentile that's the um, definition we use um, in our work um, whereas overweight and obesity includes 85th and above. So this is just obesity, this is above the 95th percentile for BMI. So the numbers should be down here at the 5th percentile. You can see the increase in the prevalence going back 10 years. This is data from um, all children attending public schools in Los Angeles. Pretty good surveillance data there. Uh, height and weight is measured in all children in the, in the LA public schools. And you can see the increase um, occurring uh, in the top line is for LAUSD children. The red line is um, all public schools. And you can see that even in three-year-olds, this line here, these are children in a program called WIC, Women, Infants, and Children. This is a program that supports low-income children. And there's a really good database available in those children. You can, you can see even by age three, the prevalence is already quite high and continuing to increase. This just shows you um, back to the LA WIC data. This is children um, age four. Um, prevalence of obesity by ethnicity. And you can see the highest level is in uh, Hispanic, Spanish speaking in the red. And this is Hispanic, English speaking, both fairly similar far exceeding the level of uh, the other ethnic groups, white. Um, Asian population is also um, large in Los Angeles. In the African American, you can see. So there's, there's probably, I think there's a report about to come out showing that among Hispanic, the divergence in obesity prevalence occurs uh, very early in life and is continuing uh, to increase. You can see there's some some plateauing, even a decrease here in the Asian um, subgroup as a continued increase. So it's particularly problematic uh, among Hispanic, and this divergence occurs very early in life. Uh, a couple of factors that we have identified, or others have identified, we've verified in this particular population uh, that are, appear to be protective, and those are uh, breastfeeding which we know from various uh, population-based studies and we have verified in this um, low-income Hispanic population, breastfeeding uh, for 12 months at least is uh, quite protective. You can see um, here the prevalence of obesity at age three to four in a subgroup uh, who were breastfed for 12 months is uh, significantly lower, 15% versus 25, 30%. And there's added benefits of low sugar consumption as well. So the combination of low sugar consumption and breastfeeding um, is very protective. Those, those are known protective um, factors uh, that, that uh, kick in very early in life. 
Now, I'll talk a little bit also about the environment. This is, this is a, a map of, of Greater Los Angeles area, uh, Los Angeles County, and it's a heat map that shows the prevalence of obesity in children uh, by color. And so the red colors are the highest level, it's hard to see the legend here, but the red color is about 50% uh, um, uh, uh, overweight and obesity. Uh, down to the green, which is, which is uh, very low levels of obesity. And there's a very clear um, kind of geographic dispersion. And these are kind of the more, for example, very affluent, more affluent um, beach locations like Malibu, Beverly Hills, and so on, where obesity is low. And then these are um, very low-income, high ethnicity um, populations. And in fact, when we uh, plotted this out, so within Los Angeles County, there are 128 cities that are defined by their own uh, communities, their own governance, and their own structures. Um, so we then plotted the obesity prevalence in those 128 cities and communities as a function of the economic hardship, which is an aggregate score um, of uh, things like poverty, unemployment, and various other factors. And you can see a very clear relationship that uh, exists. And in fact, at, at, at the low end, is a very sharp um, increase in prevalence as economic hardship worsens, and then it plateaus out a little bit. So these populations here, Manhattan Beach, Ramosa Beach, Malibu, Beverly Hills, some of the places you might have heard of, which are very affluent, uh, high-income type populations, there is absolutely no epidemic of obesity in those populations. And the epidemic of childhood obesity gets worse quite sharply with uh, worsening poverty. Can I, can I just ask you, yeah. if you've got a number 20 for Manhattan Beach, for example, does that mean there is still some economic hardship in that, in that zone? There, 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 would be, there would be some. Yeah, it's not... Um, I, I don't know the exact specifics of, of, of how that is calculated, but the, the, there would be some people living there at the lower end. Um, so, for example, East Los Angeles, where the University of Southern California Medical School is located, you can see it right up there, and there's other kind of populations too. Um, some of these outliers are kind of interesting. Um, these, for example, Rosemead is a very high Asian population community that might um, explain why uh, it's lower for obesity um, for the given degree of hardship. So this, this kind of analysis um, provided, provided us with a very interesting perspective on, on this relationship. Of course, we know the con con contributing factors for obesity are very uh, complex and multi-level, <coughs> multifactorial, uh, from the individual level, such as genetics, um, age, gender, and so on. And, home and environment factors, community factors, and then all the way up to um, natural level factors. All these factors, as we know, interact in a very complicated um, fashion. 
Now, I'm also very interested in my own research, I'll talk about this, on the, not just the causes of obesity, but the consequences of obesity in children, and how the metabolic uh, disturbances are established very early in life, um, throughout development, creating a situation of very high metabolic risk. And obesity affects multiple organ systems, even in children. Our data has shown that pretty clearly. That's been the main thrust of my own research, showing how um, these factors are established. So we don't just wake up at age 40 with, um, with a huge amount of visceral fat, with sudden increase in risk for diabetes. That process um, is established uh, from birth. In fact, one could argue quite easily that that process is established in utero before birth. There's pretty clear evidence for that being the case. I'll talk a little bit today about some of my recent interest in fatty liver disease, which is accumulation of excess fat in the liver, which is very metabolically harmful and dangerous and seems to be very problematic among um, the Hispanic population. Another thing we've been very interested in is this very interesting um, disparity and a, a very um, uh, complicated paradox between Hispanics and African Americans that I'll, I'll talk a little bit about. Both of those subgroups of the population I showed you are at higher risk uh, for obesity. I showed you the data nationally in the U.S. Uh, they also share um, a very high elevated risk for some metabolic abnormalities of obesity, like type 2 diabetes, heart disease, uh, cardiovascular risk, and so on. Um, but the relationships are quite different, so the fat patterning is very different. Uh, so Hispanics, for example, uh, tend to accumulate more fat in the, in the liver and in possibly other organs and in the visceral region. So the, when I say visceral fat, I mean the fat inside the abdominal cavity around the organs. I'll show you the picture if you're not familiar in a moment. Uh, so it has, tends to be more centrally located, less peripherally, compared to African Americans who are highly protected from the accumulation of fat in the liver and in the visceral regions and tend to accumulate fat more in the extremities, in the legs, and on the, on the butt, for example, um, which some would argue would be a protective patterning of body fat. Um, but we know it's not that protective, at least not in African Americans, because, as I just said, they have increased, similarly increased risk for cardiovascular disease and diabetes. So we're interested in what the mechanism is, number one, for how that distributing pattern varies. What is it? between people that contributes to, ch to changes in where excess body fat is deposited, and what is the difference between populations and how that translates to increased risks. And we've used this contrast uh, between Hispanics and African Americans, I'll show you some more details in a moment, we've used this contrast to try and tease some of those factors apart. So it's very, it's a, yeah, your question? question about the previous slide. Are the same patterns noticed in Africans in Africa or Hispanics in Mexico? Sorry? Are the same patterns noticed with these culture groups in their own 
But I don't, I don't think there's really, having said that, there, there's not a lot of really thoughtful comparative data in that sense. So the paradox is that given the hypothesis that increased liver and visceral fat are more metabolically damaging, which is what the literature would tell us, why then are African Americans not protected from type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease? Very interesting paradox. So we've used um, a detailed imaging um, of body fat to address this issue. This is just an example here. This is MRI imaging of the abdomen. For those of you like me that are anatomically and geographically challenged, let me just you. This is the umbilicus. These are the kidneys at the back. This is the liver, big organ here. So this is peripheral or subcutaneous fat, the red ring around the periphery. You can see these two are these are two different subjects. They're both very overweight teenage boys, and you can see they're very different patterning of body fat. You can see the subject on the right has much less uh, subcutaneous fat around the periphery and much more fat, uh, visceral fat around the organs. That's the, all these little red islands. This is visceral fat around, uh, <coughs> think the kidneys, the liver there, big, big deposition there, and whereas the subject on the left doesn't have that much visceral fat. Now also in addition, you can see the liver coloration is very different. The coloration is in, indicating the degree of fat deposition in the liver. Subject on the left has 23% of the liver um, is considered fat. That is highly um, high deposition of, of fat. Whereas the subject on the right has hardly any fat in the liver whatsoever, despite the fact that they have very high levels of visceral fat. So there's lots of different variations in the patterning of fat, both um, peripheral versus visceral, and visceral versus how much of that gets into the organs. And when fat gets into the organs, that's when it causes major uh, problems. This is a larger study that we did in 260 um, children aged between about 8 and 18, Hispanics and African Americans. You can see the mean age there is about 13 or 14. Similar degree of body weight. Uh, African Americans were slightly heavier, but not significantly. And you can see there the significant difference in patterning. Greater subcutaneous deposition in African Americans. Less visceral deposition and less <coughs> visceral, less, excuse me, less liver deposition in African Americans as well. The line at the bottom is, is fat fraction in the pancreas, another a small organ which is not significantly different. We've also looked at um, getting into much more uh, metabolic detail to look to see whether, to answer this paradox, the question, does fat from an African-American behave differently than fat from a Hispanic metabolically? And to do this, we used adipose tissue microarray, which basically takes a biopsy and then looks at what genes are expressed differently in blacks versus Hispanics. So the microarray is able to look at 20,000 different genes in the adipose tissue and compare which ones are acting differently. And in fact, 13% of the genes were differentially expressed in African-American versus Hispanic. So basically, that's telling us that there's a very different profile of genetic expression 
um, of which genes were, were working or operational, if you wish, in African Americans. And in fact, what the pattern was was that the pathways that were more distinctively different were related to fat metabolism. Uh, pathways such as oxidative phosphorylation, and here I'm putting my biochemistry hat on for a moment uh, to talk about some of these pathways. The bottom line is the metabolic profile in fat tissue from African Americans favored deposition or storage versus oxidation or burning. So the fat burning properties are quite different in African American versus um, Hispanic. You might ask why that is, what are the evolutionary reasons for that, what are the implications of that, that we don't know at this point, but it does give some insight into why there's a different patterning or a different distribution of fat between those um, groups. Now we're also interested in another factor which relates adipose tissue to disease risk, and that is adipose tissue inflammation. The fundamental question here is why is fat so bad for your health? Why is it that carrying excess body fat in your body causes you to get diabetes or heart disease? We think we might have the answer to that, but we don't. Very um, unknown mechanism linking excess adipose tissue to disease risk. One recent uh, theory is um, adipose tissue inflammation, the idea that adipose tissue itself um, causes an inflammatory response, and in fact, we know that's the case. It's just two examples here using histology, showing healthy fat cells at the top with no signs of inflammation, and adipose tissue at the bottom, which are showing um, more signs of inflammation. The red rings is a stain for, for, for adipocytes, fat cells, that are dead. So in some situations, adipose tissues are dying for whatever reason, and is contributing to an inflammatory response. When we looked at the um, inflammatory response as a function of ethnicity, you can see here there is only a borderline significant difference between blacks and Hispanics. Uh, almost a significant difference for gender, you can see uh, males higher than females in both ethnic groups. It's just a measure of the number of dead adipocytes um, per unit area or per volume. But um, what this does show us is that um, adipose tissue inflammation doesn't explain the black-Hispanic difference. It's more a function of the metabolic profile favoring fat metabolism in those different um, groups. Now, interestingly, what we do see when we throw ethnicity out and throw gender out and just look at comparing subjects who had signs of sick adipose tissue with a lot of inflammation versus none, you can see here 20 subjects had very, very healthy adipose cells versus unhealthy. Now, remember, these are all very obese subjects. These are actually, I failed to mention, these are young adults male and females with a BMI above 30. So they're all obese. But you can see a third of them are what we would call healthy obese. Their adipose tissue is very healthy, not inflamed. And when their adipose tissue is not healthy, you can see um, significantly lower insulin, significantly lower glucose, less visceral adipose tissue, less 
visceral fat, and these are inflammatory markers that are also different. So these are the healthy obese, these are the unhealthy obese. I and mean, what defines healthy versus non in this particular group is adipose tissue inflammation, not necessarily ethnicity or gender or other cultural aspects. Now another interesting factor is genetics. There's been obviously a lot in the literature on the genetics of obesity. I'm not going to talk about that. What I will talk about is the genetics of fatty liver because this is very interesting with regards to ethnicity. Very interesting. Um, because there are very clear-cut differences uh, by ethnic group for whatever reason. This is a relatively newly discovered gene called PMTLA3. It's a single amino acid substitution that has identif was identified in the GWAS and is associated with a two-fold higher liver fat accumulation. And interestingly, the effect was strongest among the Hispanics, in whom the frequency of the variant was highly prevalent. So about 50% of Hispanics in this large GWAS study um, had um, the single gene variant that was associated with higher liver fat versus African Americans in whom uh, hardly any subjects, 10%, um, had, the, had the gene mutation. So one thing we were interested in doing was to see whether the effect of this gene was manifested in children. And this is work I did with my collaborator, Human Lange, shown there on the slide. So the same, these are the, these are the children in that large study I showed you earlier, 72 African American, 188 Hispanic, age 8 to 18. You can see the gene profile here. Um, so C to G mutation, so this, this is the uh, homozygous uh, mutant that is associated with liver fat. None of the African Americans had that. 28% of the Hispanics had the GG, which is associated with liver fat. And you can see the prevalence um, of, of, of the G was about 48%. Very similar. And in fact, just like in the adult study uh, in which the GWAS was done, in this particular smaller study, you can see here the liver fat fraction in African Americans was not affected by genotype. There's no GGs. In Hispanics, you can see uh, those subjects carrying that mutation had almost a two-fold higher accumulation of fat in the liver. Now, clinically, this is very relevant. Uh, a liver fat fraction above five clinically is considered to be uh, a marker of fatty liver disease. Fatty liver disease is a major problem in terms of liver function and can lead to uh, cirrhosis and eventually liver failure uh, over time. So the next result of this study is that the effect of this single gene, which for some reason is, is present to high amounts in Hispanics or in African Americans, the effect of it is manifest in very early life. In fact, this is a subgroup of Hispanic children at the young end of the spectrum, age 8 to 10. You can see here in the subgroup that a gene is effective. Now another thing we just recently discovered and published a few months ago was a very interesting observation that becomes quite relevant and brings us back to the bottles of soda that Stanley brought. And that is that we showed there is a evidence 
of the gene by diet interactions. These are just in Hispanic children uh, that I showed you earlier. <coughs> Looking at the relationship between liver fat accumulation and sugar intake uh, by dietary assessment. <coughs> and you can see in the CC and the CG group, there's no significant relationship. But in the GG group, the uh, risk combination, there's a pretty decent correlation now with um, increased uh, sugar consumption contributing to increased liver fat. So in other words, the effect of this gene 50, um, is, um, is ex basically exacerbated in the presence of high sugar consumption. Uh, two separate independent risk factors basically interacting. So the effect of this gene on liver fat is manifested very early in life. The effects on increased ectopic fat deposition is specific to the liver and the effects are exacerbated in the context of high sugar consumption. Creating, um, if you wish, uh, a perfect storm for Hispanics. You have here a genotype that is highly prevalent in Hispanics, um, a behavior, sugar consumption, which is highly popular in Hispanics. We'll talk about in a moment. The data shown in the can there are just some um, US statistics. They're not specific to Hispanics, but you can see there. Um, 41% of children aged 2 to 11 years of age in the U.S. drink at least one soda per day, and 62% of teenagers drink at least one soda per day. The double combination of those two factors is very problematic for liver fat accumulation, which has its then implications for long-term uh, liver disease, including liver cancer. So this kind of gets me to the uh, sugar part of the story. Because um, we know that even before we discovered this interaction, high sugar consumption has been shown in various studies to be linked to type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, separately to the independent effects of obesity. We know that sugar consumption increases the odds ratio in children quite dramatically in the development of obesity. <coughs> And part of this, and this gets to the high fructose corn syrup thing that Stanley mentioned, some of this may be due to the fructose, and some may be just due to the sugar, so we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, so this is one factor here showing the increased uh, portion sizes um, of, of soda consumption going back to the 1920s. You can see um, almost a five-fold increase in the typical serving size of, of, of soda consumption. <coughs> so uh, let me talk a little bit about what's in the soda, which is what another thing we're very interested in, what's in a soda, what is the sugar in a soda. Um, so in the UK soda appears to be predominantly sucrose, which um, is, is a disaccharide of glucose and fructose. High fructose corn syrup is a, is, is a chemically um, converted form of sugar that takes corn and converts it to sugar and can, creates a mixture, a chemical mixture of glucose and fructose. Now glucose and fructose are structurally very similar, in fact um, they're almost identical uh, chemically, but they're functionally extremely different. 
Uh, fructose is uh, 20 times sweeter than glucose. It is absorbed very, through a very specific uh, channel in the gut. And in fact, in high doses, especially when consumed quickly, uh, can contribute to fructose malabsorption with GI symptoms. Fructose is absorbed almost entirely in the, in the liver and becomes the substrate, if you wish, for new fat synthesis. So fructose consumption is almost entirely metabolized in the liver and can become can be converted to um, triglycerides and then deposited as fat. Now another thing that's dramatically different between fructose and glucose is that fructose does not stimulate insulin release like glucose does. So the classic test of that is the oral glucose challenge test. You drink a glass of glucose and you measure the insulin response. Insulin goes up. What does insulin do? Takes glucose out of the blood, clears glucose. Glucose gets uptaken to muscle, liver, fat, wherever. Fructose, on the other hand, does not stimulate insulin to be released. So glucose is hanging, so the fructose will be hanging around in, in circulation much longer and have its damaging effects on, on, on different tissues. It's not clear from the circulation as quickly. <coughs> so like I mentioned, sucrose is, or table, common table sugar is glucose connected to fructose. High fructose corn syrup is a processed mixture of glucose and fructose um, that's been converted. Now typically, according to the manufacturers, high fructose corn syrup typically is a mixture of 55% fructose and 45% glucose. But the specific mixture is not really ever identified on, on the label. Now I have um, found some foods in the UK that are made with high fructose corn syrup. Then we um, have a particularly, can we know anything about this? When I lived here a long time ago, I used to like hobnob biscuits. And I just found out a few weeks ago that hobnobs is one of the few items in the supermarket uh, that are made with high fructose corn syrup. It's called something different. They don't call it high fructose corn syrup. I think they call it glucose fructose or something like that. I forget exactly. If you look on the hobnob food label, I should have taken a picture of it and see. Anyways, I'll show you in a moment high fructose corn syrup is hardly used in this country. Now, I've gotten recently, and still am, currently involved in a big um, argument with the um, food industry. Uh, the food, in food and beverage industry says, what's all the fuss about? High fructose corn syrup is just 55% fructose and 45% glucose. It's not really that much different from table sugar, which is 50-50, because once the sucrose is broken down in the body, it releases fructose and glucose. So the net effect is actually quite similar, um, which chemically uh, might be true, uh, although it turns out there's other things in high fructose corn syrup that you don't actually know about. And consider that consider that it's a highly synthetic compound. So what we did that got us into a lot of trouble was we went shopping one day in the supermarket and purchased a whole bunch of soft drinks, and we sent them off to a lab to be analyzed, so we could figure out how much fructose and glucose and sucrose were actually in there. And what we found was kind of interesting. The three most popular soft drinks in the U.S. were Coca-Cola. Pepsi and Sprite 
And from our analysis that was done in the lab, independent lab, it appeared that the mixture was about 65-35, which now, for me, changes the argument that this is not just 50-50, this is a significant departure from 50-50. So here's just some of the results from that study, which was published a couple months ago in the journal Obesity, showing uh, different drinks, some of which, um, Pepsi, Coke, and Sprite in the far left there, have about 65 to 35 fructose to glucose. Very different from the label. Some other drinks uh, shown on the right uh, are still not dramatically higher than 55, but still somewhat higher than 55. Um, a couple of examples shown here. So this is now getting me very interested in, in, in um, how high fructose corn syrup is used, it's, um, whether it should be indicated in the label in terms of how much fructose is in there. And I got into a discussion with Stanley on this when we met a few weeks ago, and this is where I got interested in, in um, global producers of high fructose corn syrup. <clears throat> so this graph here were data that I managed to obtain um, on global production of high fructose corn syrup in the year 2010. Uh, by country shown along the bottom. Uh, Finland, France, Greece, Holland, Romania, UK, and India are zero producers of high fructose corn syrup. Other countries there shown are very low. And the US is by far the highest. In fact, this number is 10 times higher. It's um, way off the scale. The next highest is Japan, China, Mexico, Turkey, and Argentina are also high producers. <clears throat> and so then I normalized that per capita, just divided the production by the number of the population, and I found some very interesting results, which I'm still trying to figure out. And that is that Eastern European countries, Bulgaria, Slovakia, and Hungary, are very high producers, which I would then assume as consumers, I don't have the consumption data. In fact, it's impossible to really determine the consumption of high fructose corn syrup because it's um, not clear, not always indicated in the label, or if it is, we don't, uh, you can't pull it out of the dietary diaries. So if we use production as an estimate of consumption, we can see some very interesting patterns. Uh, other countries are very low. Uh, you can see them on the left. But it's getting me interested in, in, in this kind of, uh, this interesting pattern of, of, of production and in Eastern versus Western Europe, for example, appears to be um, an interesting example. So I'm, I'm still working, this is, this is stuff I'm just fiddling with right now. I'm about to try and see if this pattern is related in any way to global prevalence of obesity and diabetes and things like that. Another interesting thing I figured out is that, as I mentioned, the US is the largest uh, producer of high fructose corn syrup is also the largest exporter, and it exports all of all of the exports from the U.S., which is about 10% of what's produced, is going to Mexico. So the U.S. is now basically um, creating this huge export of high fructose corn syrup into Mexico. So it should be, and you can see here, it's very recent. This 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 is data I just obtained a week or so ago. You can see in the last five years, 
a dramatic increase in the production of high fructose corn syrup. 2002 is when Mexico challenged the World Trade Organization code, isn't it? Yeah, it's a bit... Yeah, interesting you mentioned that because I've been trying to find out what happened here, and it's something to do with the with the NAFTA as well, the North American. Yeah, they they, they 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 stopped. They tried to stop the import of high fructose corn syrup to to, to 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 Mexico. Then it was challenged by the U.S. and the World Trade Organization turned it turned it over. Oh, they did in yeah. two thousand two. So there you go. No, I think two thousand and four. So then suddenly the gates were open. Uh huh. So so. This is very interesting to me. It should be very interesting to see what's going to happen uh, in Mexico. We're now going to be big um, consumers of high-fructose corn syrup. There's something also to do with the trade of sugar, if I remember correctly. That, um, do you know anything about that? that what? Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I think high fructose corn syrup and sugar both were kind of, you know, they're, pro they're protected industries, and sugar uh -huh. more so in the Caribbean than Mexico, but it's all bundled together. Mm -hmm. The Caribbean, you know, uh, 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 and, and, and Mexican sort of import export treaties were all scrutinized by the World Trade mm -hmm. Organization mm -hmm. and came in favor of the US. So another argument um, you know, in favor of high fructose corn syrup is that fructose is, is a natural sugar, and it is. And it's just an example comparison here. Apples contain fructose, all fruits, most fruits contain fructose, and apple contains about 15 grams of fructose. That also comes along, obviously, with other nutritional benefits compared to a uh, can of soda, which is about 28 grams of fructose and 22 grams of glucose. Or if our measures are correct, and it's 65% fructose, it would be 33 grams. So it's almost uh, at least double, or almost double, maybe more than double the amount of fructose, plus more sugar. So it's a lot more, obviously a lot more sugar in the canister. It's just a graph here showing that how, how fructose versus glucose is handled differently that I mentioned earlier. I'm just kind of skip over that because we're running out of time here. But this is another interesting. Um, study, and there was a, a report on this in the newspaper yesterday, another study verified this, but one of my colleagues had published this a few years ago, showing, this is using a functional MRI of people consuming glucose versus fructose. So glucose and fructose affect the brain very differently. So the orange regions in the brain here are regions in which cerebral blood flow is, is um, is greater after fructose compared to glucose consumption. <coughs> you can see um, the areas that are different, including the orbital frontal cortex, which is involved with reward circuits and hypothalamus, are all um, differentially affected um, after fructose versus glucose. So there's definitely brain-specific effects of these two sugars. Now, of course, what we're fighting against is a huge industry. Um, these are U.S. numbers. I'm sure, relatively speaking, it's similar here. Uh, the numbers are $10 billion is spent advertising food and beverages to children. That's just the children. And $500 million of that is sugary beverages. 
This is just one such advertisement which drives me nuts. And I have to drive past it several times a day. Um, Coca-Cola Twin Pack, enough for your meal. Um, <clears throat> this is very interesting data too, showing the economic um, explanation maybe for why um, there, there's a large increase in, in, in soda consumption. And that is basically sodas are a good deal. So this is a consumer price index of different food items going back to 1980. This is um, basically uh, sugary beverages, fizzy drinks, meats, cheeses, soups, fish, cereal, fresh fruits and vegetables. You can see the uh, opposite patterns. You might not have the number, but how would it compare with milk, which is another drink as opposed to food? I don't know. I, I pulled this graph right off the web. That's an interesting question. I mean, Yes. Are these in prices per unit or pounds? What's the? Um, you know, it's a relative. Um, it's a relative change, relative to 1980s. So it's just a relative change. In the U.S. now, there's a big movement towards um, soda tax as a way to um, address this issue. Very nice review article uh, a few years ago by Kelly Drenell, who's at Yale and a big um, proponent um, in favor of the, of the sugar tax. He's written some very nice articles on that and argues that a penny per ounce of excise tax is basically one cent per ounce um, of sugar, which would be about, um, I think, 15 cents per can. <clears throat> argues would reduce consumption of sugary beverages by more than 10%. And in California, there's a, there's a sort of bill tax, which is similar, one cent per teaspoon, so that soda or that bottle as well, which I think would be about 17 teaspoons of sugar. So imagine going to the coffee shop and seeing somebody emptying 17 sachets of sugar in their coffee. <clears throat> probably the jaw would drop, but a lot of people, you know, they very, very popular drinks in the U.S. So 17 teaspoons of sugar, that would be 17 cent tax on a bottle like that. And the revenue in the California bill, all the bills are a little different, the California bill uh, would be used towards directly back into a fund to support obesity prevention efforts. Of course, this bill hasn't... Um, reached a vote, hasn't come to a vote yet. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about it. Um, 15, 16 other states in the U.S. are considering um, other such soda tax bills. And just a quick word globally, so um, this is a very interesting article that I read recently um, talking about Africa as the, as, as, as the next frontier for, for for the food and beverage industry. For, for this particular article talks about um, Coca-Cola in particular. Um, Mexico, it turns out, has the highest per capita consumption of Coca-Cola, which is very interesting if you think back to the previous uh, discussion of the perfect storm. So Mexi Mexico has a very high consumption of sugar, very high prevalence of this genetic uh, factor, perfect storm for the genetic interaction. 
Coca-Cola has like, realized that there's a huge market out there in Africa. It's just invested $12 billion. If you look at the global consumption patterns of Coca-Cola, I just pulled this off of the web, you can see that um, there's a very clear um, emerging market, if you like, for Coca-Cola and other beverages in Africa, um, for example, in Asia. Um, so that's where they're investing currently in um, those resources. I'm just going to end there because I'm, I'm hoping we're going to leave some time for some some questions and discussion. Uh, be happy to um, welcome any, any questions. Thanks for thanks for listening. I hope that was interesting. That's kind of just where we're at. There's a lot more going on. Be happy to talk about it. There's a lot of work for any questions. So thanks very much.